Revelation chapter number 2 as we continue our series tonight in, uh, entitled, Hear What the Spirit Saith Unto the Churches. There are seven times in these two chapters, Gen- uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where we are told to listen or to hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And uh, of course, our prayer is for God's help in, uh, to be the type of church that He can bless, that he, that he can use for His glory. And under the inspiration of God, the Apostle John writes to these seven churches, these first century churches, these literal churches. You know, you can still go to, uh, to the Middle East, Asia Minor, or, or modern-day Turkey, and you can visit uh, the churches to whom John wrote in this particular epistle. My pastor took that tour. I probably wouldn't recommend it right now. Uh, with what uh, geopolitically, <laughs> and uh, you might be taking matters into your or your life in your own hands at that point. Uh, but uh, you can go, you can visit the places, uh, th- these locations to where these churches met. Uh, but remember, these these churches each exhibited some some characteristics that that we would pray that God would allow us to have. They were also doing some things that you know perhaps we ought not do and be on guard against. Uh, remember, we do not believe that these seven churches represent an age uh, in the church in the in the church age. Uh, there's some that would that would like to 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 really take a stretch here and say that these that within the church age in which we live, there are seven periods of time during which the church itself. Uh, the bride of Christ would exhibit uh, these these behaviors indicative of what we find in the seven churches. We don't believe that to be the case. Uh, we believe that throughout time, uh, we can find these characteristics and qualities uh, in every church, no matter where it's at in the world. But our prayer is for God to help us, again, be the, the kind of church that He blesses, uh, the church that's obedient to Him, that that places the emphasis where, where the Lord places the emphasis, that serves and lives for the Lord and, and uh, desires to bring Him glory, that doesn't, that doesn't get caught up with the, with the things of this world, that doesn't become so complacent and, and so, uh, so callous to the things of God's Word, but that we're, that we're zealous for the Lord and, and on fire for God. Not like that church in Laodicea uh, that was neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. But we come here tonight and we ask ourselves the question again, what type of church are we? What kind of Christian life do you have? As we look here tonight in Revelation chapter 2, we come again or we, uh, to the church of Smyrna. If you're, if you're able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll read just a few verses here tonight. Beginning in verse 8, we'll read down through verse number 11. But notice what the Bible says, beginning again. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of second death. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, this is, this is exciting. Uh, I love looking at, uh, at what your Spirit saith to the churches. And God, I pray that each of us tonight would be here with a, with, a, with a great level of expectation in our hearts. Lord, that we would be eager to hear and obey what the Word of God says. And so, Father, tonight my prayer is that you'd open our eyes, that we may behold marvelous things from your law, uh, Lord, I pray you challenge us and help us be the, the church uh, that you can bless, that you can use for your glory here in this world. God, we're thankful for what you've done, the testimony that you have here in these verses. We ask that you'd help us embrace it tonight and, and, and learn to live biblically. 
And give us your help, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're in the habit of marking things in your Bibles, I'd like to draw your attention to what the Word of God says in verse number 10 of Revelation chapter number 2. As, as John writes, he's writing to, a, to the church at Smyrna, which is suffering great persecution. And may I say, get ready. You and I, we, we are enjoying a great level of liberty here in, the, in, our, in our nation. The freedom to exercise a public expression of faith, public worship. But get ready. Because one day, and, and even right now, there is an effort uh, in our culture, in our society, to limit the free expression of our faith. Uh, they, they are seeking to silence the message of, of God and His Word, even in Canada, our neighbor to the north. It is illegal for you to attempt to convert someone who is a homosexual. They'll put you in jail. Uh, they, they, they would, uh, in certain provinces uh, in Canada, they would consider preaching against such topics, hate speech, and to be put in jail. And uh, we, we find a great uh, desire, even in our nation, by certain people um, who are sympathetic to certain uh, ways of life to try to silence and, and hinder uh, the work of God in the local churches. But there's one exhortation that we find in chapter 2 and verse 10. And it's quite fittingly, it kind of ties similarly to what we saw this morning in the book of Daniel. In chapter 2 and verse number 10, John writes to the church, and Jesus says to them, he says, be thou faithful unto death. Be thou faithful. Mark that expression in your Bibles. What does God desire of you and me? What does God desire for our church? No matter what comes our way, the Lord desires for you and me. He gives us the command saying, Be thou faithful. Be thou faithful unto death. As we looked this morning, we, found, we defined the word faithful. But here it, it, uh, it speaks to something different, if you would. This morning we emphasized our need to be faithful, and generally speaking, we defined faithfulness as, as, a, uh, as being consistent in the performance of duties or services, exact and in attending to commands as a faithful servant. And that was generally speaking, but specifically uh, to our Christian life, we defined faithfulness as being firm in adherence to the truth and to the duties of religion, uh, to living for Christ, following Him and His Word, and serving Him faithfully. But we look here in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, we find the word faithful, and it has its roots in a different sense. What it speaks of here is trusting. God is telling the church, it says, be faithful or be trustful. What Christ is looking at, this, He's talking to this church who is in the midst of great persecution and tribulation and trial, and He looks at them and He says, just keep trusting Me. Trust Me. How many of us trust the Lord tonight? I trust Him. How many of you, here's, here's a question, how many of us trust the Lord to do the right thing? I trust God to always do the right thing. How many of us trust the Lord to take care of our needs, even in the midst of hardship and difficulty, right? How many of us trust the Lord, come what may? And come what may, we find the exhortation of Christ Himself to the local church. He says, be faithful unto death. Just trust me. We consider this, this church of Smyrna, which has been called by some a burning bush church. In Exodus chapter number 3, in verse number 3, we find uh, the story of Moses in the burning bush. The Bible says, and Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, uh, why the bush is not burnt. You know, it's one of those things you just have to kind of stop and look and see, man, what's going on here? There's a lot going on. There's a great trial of affliction taking place here uh, in Revelation 2, 2, described at the church of Smyrna, going through great tribulation and poverty. But the church of Smyrna uh, can also be described in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn with me there, if you would, please, holding your place in, in Revelation chapter 2. And, 
And notice briefly here tonight what the Bible says of this church, or, or, the, or the Christians, if you would, in Revelation chapter 11. In verse 34, we find the statement, quenched the violence of fire. In verse 37 of Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible says, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, and were slain with the sword. They, they wandered about in, in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And throughout, throughout time, God's church, the true church, the Bible-believing church, has suffered much persecution at the hands of the world and false religion alike. It's been, it's been noted that during the Dark Ages, both the Catholics and the Protestants alike persecuted Bible believers, martyring upwards of five million during the times of the Dark Ages alone. During the time of this writing, Nero, the Roman emperor, is on the throne, who is said to have lighted his garden with the saints, putting them up on posts and setting them on fire. Fox's Book of Martyrs describes many dozens, if you would, of martyrs who gave their life for the Lord. We can trace our martyrdom throughout history. We can look to the early colonial days of America where there was much religious persecution. You realize that's why America was settled? That's why the pilgrims came uh, to, to the New World, so they could practice their faith without fear of being persecuted, to find liberty. And we look and we find all of this, the, and we, we find in our, in our nation's constitution the separation of church and state, which has been distorted in modern days. You know what the separation of church and state is? It's not that the church has no business in politics, because it does. Separation of church and state is the state staying out of our business. Right? It gives us the ability to teach and preach the Word of God. It gives us the freedom to do so. And even the early Virginia Baptists, the likes of John, uh, John Bacchus and, and, um, and, or Isaac Bacchus and, and other great men of God who, who stood for truth, they were high, heavily persecuted in, uh, in uh, New England, the Anglican Church, and, and, uh, and other Protestants, the Congregationalists. They would, they would put pastors in jail for not having license to preach. They would beat them. They would fine them uh, great deals of money, all because they sought to serve the Lord. We were delivered from, from that persecution for a time. But there's still throughout the world, in the around 1900, there was a. If you go up to Oberlin, Ohio, which is about two hours from here, there's a monument on the grounds of Oberlin College, which at one time was a very fundamental Bible-believing school. Uh, the famous evangelist Charles Finney uh, was was the president of theology there. But in 1900, there was a uh, there were missionaries in China that lost their lives during the Boxer Rebellion. And there is a, a monument to commemorate their, their lives uh, that they gave for the Lord and His work. It's still there on the grounds of that secular university to this day. We can look and, and fast forward. Communist China. Great persecution. It's illegal to be Christian in China. But there's, it's said that there are more uh, underground churches meeting in China today than anywhere else in the world. During the, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s in Soviet Russia, our Bible-believing brethren were taken to Siberia and forced into labor camps and suffered great persecution. And the likes, you could, we could look all around the world and see the suffering of the saints at the hands of the lost. What does the Lord desire us to be? God wants us to be faithful. 
He says, just trust me. Trust the Lord. Why can you trust the Lord? There are times in life when when circumstances come that enter our lives that, that are just in our flesh questionable at best. We don't understand them. We have... We cannot comprehend the magnitude of the suffering. Our hearts hurt and we're confused. And and if we're not careful, we begin to question God. But in it all, Christ says, Be faithful. Be thou faithful. Just trust me. It's going to be okay. Christian, are you ready for that time? There are three reasons tonight, as we see here in Revelation chapter 2. There are three reasons why you and I can trust the Lord during the midst of hardship and trials. The first one is very sweet. It's found in verse number 8. We can trust Christ because Christ has conquered death. We can trust Christ because Christ has conquered death. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you turn there, listen to what the Bible says in verse number 18. As Christ speaks to John in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, He speaks and He tells John something special about Himself. Something that John had already known. Something that John had already seen with his own eyes. Something that John had already trusted and accepted. But Jesus conquered death. The Bible says in Revelation chapter number 1 and verse 18, it says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. So be it, right? And have the keys of hell and death. Christ, Christ conquered death. The Bible says he in the book of, of, of Hebrews that he tasted death for every man. But it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, notice what the Bible says beginning in verse 55. It says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, uh, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ conquered death, and He gives to us salvation. And because of our relationship with Christ, you have conquered death too. We have everlasting life because Jesus holds the keys of hell and death. He, he, he's won the victory. And Christian, if we stop right there tonight, that would be enough, would it? And because Christ is alive, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible says that He ever liveth to make ever intercession for you and for me. We can trust the Lord because He's conquered death. You know, on my own, I cannot conquer death. On my own, I will remain in the grave. If left to myself, there is no hope because it's not of works that I have done. It's only because of what Christ has completed. He came up, He rose victoriously. He is alive forevermore. Because Christ is alive, I can trust Him. Because He conquered death, it's going to be okay. Notice the second reason we can trust the Lord tonight. Not only did Christ conquer death, but He also conquered our sufferings. Look in what the Bible says in verse number 8. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. He says, I know thy works. Mark that expression, if you would. The opening statement there in verse 9. I know thy works. You know what I'm thankful for? I'm glad that Jesus knows. Aren't you? I'm glad Jesus knows. He knows everything there is about you. Sometimes it's scary, isn't it? But He knows everything about you. He knows exactly what you've experienced. He knows exactly what you're going through. Notice what the Bible says. It says, I know thy works. And tribulation, 
in poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. You know, I wish the Christian life were free from suffering, but that's not how the Lord designed it. As we look here in Revelation chapter 2, we find that this church was impoverished. It says God that Christ knows, knew their works, He knows their tribulation, and He knows their poverty. Yet in all this tribulation, in all of this poverty, He says something unique or, or something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It says you may think you're rich or you're poor, but you're rich. Look what the Bible says. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 8, if you would. As Christ is talking to the church at Smyrna, we see a parallel here to the life of the Apostle Paul in his dealings with the church in Corinth as he speaks to them concerning the poverty of those living in Macedonia who in the great in their great poverty they were they abounded in the riches of their liberality they they gave this offering to the to those in need they had nothing but somehow from that nothing, they were able to be rich. It doesn't make sense. You know, if, if we're rich, then, we ought, then our bank accounts ought to say so. Right? If we're rich, then, then the bottom line won't, won't be in the negatives. But that's not what Christ says. Because our wealth is not a wealth of money. Our wealth is a wealth of Christ. Look what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse number 9. It says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Christ was rich! Wasn't He? I mean, he, the, full, the, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything we see is God's. Christ is co-equal with God. He's co-existent. With God. Yet, in his riches, he decided that he was going to become poor. Look there again in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. The Word of God says that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. You are rich toward God, aren't we? We're rich because Christ became poor. He left His throne in heaven, condescended to to man, was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He became poor so that He could pay the price for our sin, rose victoriously from the grave, and upon entering this covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, by placing my faith and trust in Him, I am now rich. <laughs> I'm rich. And the Bible says, though, here in, in, in Revelation chapter 2, that in this tribulation, in, this, in their poverty, in their, their works, he says, you're rich. How are they rich if they're poor? Because they're rich toward God. Chris, you know, we have, we have this, this relationship with Christ, which is priceless. But do you realize that the Christian can be poor at the same time towards the Lord? You know, I have this priceless relationship with Christ, but if I squander my life and and I fail to serve my Lord, then I'm going to have no treasures in heaven. I'm reminded of what the Bible says in Luke chapter 12 about the man who decided that he would didn't have enough room in his barns to store all of his goods. So he tore down his barns to build greater barns. And then God said, thou fool. Right? And that man died, left all that stuff behind. And that's all he had was the things in this life, and he was not rich toward God. 
How can you be rich toward God? We're rich toward God as we faithfully serve Him and live our lives for Him. The Bible says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Why? Because, you, you know, we can't, the only thing that we can, the only treasure that we can take to heaven is what we send on ahead. You know, if, if you go to, to Egypt and you look, and you look in, in, the, in, those, in the pyramids of the pharaohs, you know what you find? All the stuff that they thought they could take with them. If you go to China and uh, you see uh, the terracotta soldiers and all the army that, that, that the, uh, the Chinese emperor amassed and how, how unique every one of those terracotta soldiers are. Do you realize that every terracotta soldier has a different face? That's a lot of work. And, and when, they were, when they were put together and placed there, they had all, of, like, wep- like, all these real weapons these swords and spears and shields and, and bows and arrows and, and crossbows and all of this weaponry. And it was all bronze and brass and silver and gold. It's still there today. You can't take it with you. You see, so oftentimes we have a misplaced understanding of what true wealth is. You know, you can be rich in this world, yet impoverished before the Lord. I don't want to be impoverished before God. I want to live my life for His glory. I want to to win the lost to Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 2, he says, I know thy works in tribulation, in poverty, but thou art rich. Why were they rich? They were rich because they they were living for the Lord. In all of the hardship, in all the tribulation, they were faithful. They weren't living for this world. They were busy serving the Lord, winning the loss to Jesus Christ. And yet they suffered. The Bible uses tribulation and poverty, and then even goes on to say, and I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews and are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. They, were, they suffered with false teachers and false doctrine, people coming in trying to impose this, this false religion upon them. They, they endured much for the cause of Christ, but they continued. And through all of their sufferings, Jesus said, I know. I know. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, if you would. Hebrews chapter number 4. Well, how does Jesus know? Well, he is God, after all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus knows. But it's not just this secondary knowledge that he has, or it's not just uh, uh, an omniscient knowledge and, and understanding what you are going through. Christ knows because he was there. He walked in your shoes. He's gone through everything that you could ever possibly imagine. That's why he's our great high priest. Look in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse number 14. You know what I love about the the book of Hebrews is the theme that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than the man-made priesthood. Why? Well, notice. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed in the heavens. Remember, Jesus conquered death. <laughs> Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Notice that expression there again. In verse number 15, it says, was but was in all points tempted like as we are. What does that mean? It means He knows. He knows. He knows your hardship. He knows your happiness. He knows your sadness. He knows the temptations. He knows all of the feeling and frustration. He knows because He's our great high priest. Notice verse 16 there, Hebrews chapter 4. Because Jesus knows, 
Let us therefore come boldly. On the throne of grace, we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ has conquered our suffering. And in our suffering, He is that friend that sticketh closer than a brother. In that suffering, He is the the risen, conquering Savior who's seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for you. And He says, I know, so just come to Me for your help. Come to Me. He that cometh to Me, I will in no wise cast out. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 8, 9, and 10. Because you think, well, my life really isn't all that bad. Well, in the Christian life, we're going to suffer. It's guaranteed. We leave that part out when we try to lead people to Christ. <laughs> you know. But it's true. The Christian life is not an easy life. Christian life is difficult. It's misunderstood. It's misrepresented. But notice what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse number 8. It says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Notice verse 10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Notice the statement there, after that ye have suffered forever. Is that what it says? After that ye have suffered a really, really long time. Is that what the Word of God says? It's after that you have suffered a while. Aren't you glad that the sufferings of this life are not forever? It's just brief. Look what the Bible says back in Revelation chapter number 2. Notice again in verse number 10. It says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Ten days. What's the significance of ten days? It's just brief. It's not, it's not going to last forever. It's just short time. It's going to be okay, is what Christ is saying. It's going to be all right, but it's just temporary. It might seem like it's taken forever, but it's going to be all right. It's not forever. This is not permanent. The sufferings of this life are not forever. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 30 and verse 5. It says, for his anger endureth but for a moment, in his favor is life. Notice, weeping may endure for a, a night, but joy cometh in the morning. It's only for a short time. It's going to be all right. We can trust the Lord. We can trust him come what may. We can trust him because he's conquered death. We, we can trust him because he's conquered our sufferings. But notice finally, We can trust Him because, after all, He is our Savior. He is our Savior. Look back in Revelation chapter 2, and notice what the Bible says in verses 10 and 11. The end of verse 10, it says, uh, And ye shall have tribulation ten days. It says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. You know what happens when Christ comes back? We're going to see here in just a second. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. Christ says, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. The Bible says in, in, in chapter 2, in verse, 11, uh, verse 10, it says, and I will give thee a crown of life. So what I'm going to give you is going to last forever. The, the church in Smyrna, they were well 
uh, they were well versed in what the Olympics was in Roman days, and how these people they would they would they would run, they would train, they would they would be victorious, and they would get this crown. They would kind of tie together, weave together, made out of out of a branch. What ha- what happens to anything? To any flower? Any limb that you cut off a tree, what happens with that? Fades, doesn't it? It dies, turns brown, falls apart. All the leaves become crusty, they flake. I mean, that's why diamonds are a girl's best friend and not flowers, right? (laughs) Sorry, guys. may have just got you in over your heads, but uh, we think of all those, all these things. But he says, listen, when I come back, I'm going to give you a reward that never fades away, that will outlast the universe itself and give you this crown of life. But notice what else it says there again in verse number 11. He makes the statement, he says, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. What is this second death? Turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter number 20. Revelation, chapter number 20. The second death is nothing to be joked about. It is a real event that will take place at the end of Christ's millennial kingdom. You see, the next event that takes place on God's prophetic timeline is the rapture of the church. The Bible speaks of that as the catching away. Oh man, I'm looking forward to that day. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's no secret, as I was talking to somebody about earlier. It's right there in the Scriptures. And... uh But that's the next thing that takes place on God's prophetic timetable. There's not one bit of Bible prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus Christ can come back. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Please. After Christ catches His church away, there's a period of seven years which we call the tribulation. During that time, God will raise up the like, or will allow the Antichrist to take over. But during that time, he's specifically working to bring the Jewish people back to himself. They will go through a great period of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. At the end of that seven years, they'll be gathered together uh, seeking refuge, and Christ will return. I've been to the very place, the very location, where Christ will come back. And I'll be back there again someday, you know, whether it's whether it's in this life or on the brink of eternity. But we'll come back with the Lord in that day. He won't need our help. We're just there for moral support. But with the sword of His mouth, He will, slay, he will smite the nations, the armies of the Antichrist there in the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Armageddon. Upon that, Jesus Christ will not dismount that horse, but he will go directly to the Mount of Olives, where we find Acts chapter number 1, verse 8. He will come in like manner. We read about it in in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, Zephaniah, how when Christ gets off that horse, the Bible says his feet are going to literally touch down on the Mount of Olives. And in chapter 14 of that book, the Bible tells how the mountain is going to split in two. And Jesus will be ushered right into the Holy of Holies, that third temple that is being prepared for construction at this moment, making plans. He will rule and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And you know what? You and I, as His faithful followers, His disciples, we will help Him reign for a thousand years. What a great privilege. 
But at the end of that 1,000 years, oh, may I say during that 1,000 years, the devil is bound? Can't forget that, right? He's cast in the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. And at the end of that 1,000 years, he's, he's set free for a short season. Because during that time, there will still be mortal people on this earth, still flesh and blood, still being able to get married and have children. And, and though there's a world void of the devil, they still, have, they still have to deal with the flesh, right? And at the end of that time, the devil is going to try to raise up a rebellion that Christ will, extinct, will exterminate. He'll put it down just as quickly as it starts. Even in a utopia, even with Christ visibly reigning, where they can look and they can see the risen, conquering Lord, they're still going to have the audacity uh, to do their own thing. All we like sheep have gone astray. But at the end of all of that, there's something that we find here in, in Revelation chapter 20. It's called the great white throne judgment. And this is something that none of us want to attend. And if you're a Christian tonight, if you've come to know Christ as your Savior, you don't have to worry about it. This doesn't even apply to you. You say, well, Pastor, then why are we talking about it? Because Jesus is our Savior. He's delivered us from all of this. But notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse number 11. Trying to think, maybe I don't want to begin there. Let's begin verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 20. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. I think sometimes we make we have this false impression that all sin is equal with God, but it's not the case. We, we treat lying differently than we treat capital murder, don't we? All sin is not the same. If it were the same, then Jesus would have not said to those who harm children that it would be better for them to have a millstone cast or, or tied around their neck and cast in the depths of the sea. Right? There's things that aren't actually so that we've come to, to think. But, but Jesus, he says here, what we're told here, we'll, we'll judge them out of the books. Their names are found in one book. Their deeds are found in others. They will be judged according to their deeds. The Bible goes on to say in, uh, in verse 13, it says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. The Bible says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And notice verse 15, the Bible says, And whosoever was not found written, in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. There's the second death. The second death is not for the saints. It's been, it's been said, I forget who said it, I don't know who said it, doesn't matter, but it's a pretty interesting statement. It's better to be born twice and die once 
to be born once and die twice, right? John chapter 3 says you must be born again. And if you've been born again, you are in no, you're in no place vulnerable to stand before this great white throne judgment because you've been saved from your sin. You've been redeemed. God has imputed to your account the sinless, spotless record of the righteous, conquering Lord Jesus Christ. We have salvation in Him. We don't have to to worry about this second death. We are delivered from this second death. But those who stand before the Lord at the great white throne are those who have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They've never accepted Jesus as their Savior. And because of that, they must stand before Him at this judgment. And their names are not found in that book of life. Therefore, they are they're cast into the lake of fire. Christian, this is the second death. You can trust the Lord because He's your Savior. You know, there's times in life where, man, life is hard. It doesn't make sense. Life hurts. Things are questionable. But at the end of the day, Jesus has conquered death. He's conquered our sufferings, and He is our Savior. Therefore, He writes and He tells us, He says, Be thou faithful. Just trust Me. That's what Christ says. That's what the Lord desires of us. So when difficulty arises, it's not a matter of if, but just a matter of when. When hardships come, when difficulty arises in your life, how will you respond? The trial trial of your faith is a precious thing. Because during that time we learn that we can depend upon the Lord. This church at Smyrna was told by Christ himself, be thou faithful. Trust in me. Come what may, be faithful unto death. Just trust me. Come what may, it's going to be okay. Do you believe that tonight? It's the words of Christ. He says, I know. I understand. So just go to him by faith. Pray. Trust in him. Seek deliverance. Seek his comfort. Seek his help. Because he's able. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. In just a moment, the piano will play tonight. We'll have a time of invitation. Let's all stand to our feet. How many of us here tonight would say, Pastor, pray for me. I want to be, I want to be the person that's trusting in the Lord. I want to be that Christian that trusts in the Lord regardless of how easy things are or how difficult things are. Whether I understand them, whether I'm confused by them, come what may, I simply am going to purpose in my heart to trust the Lord during times of tribulation and poverty and affliction. I'm trusting Jesus. Is that you? May I pray with you tonight? Amen. Just trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Maybe you're here tonight and you're going through some difficulty. Maybe there's a situation in your life that has consumed uh, consumed your heart, your burden down, this heavy laden. Would you give that to the Lord tonight? Is there anybody here tonight say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm I'm just going through some things that I'm struggling with. Will you pray for me? I, I see your hand. Praise the Lord. Praying for you. Is there anybody else? How many of us would leave our places tonight and come to pray and say, God, help me be. Help me be that the Christian. Help me be the one that trusts in you. Come what may. Lord, help me be faithful. Faithful unto death. Help me just keep trusting you. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, it's our prayer that you'd help us be faithful. Lord, there's times in life when we don't understand why things happen. And Lord, perhaps we never will this side of eternity. But Lord, one thing is for sure. We know we can trust you because you've conquered death, because you have conquered our sufferings, and you are our Savior. God bless the invitation tonight, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's turn to Psalm number 489, 489. We won't tarry long tonight. Let's sing that first verse. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. The Lord has spoken to your heart, you come. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. On that last all to Jesus I surrender, Lord. I give myself to Thee. Fill me with Thy love and power. Let Thy blessings fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Amen. Well, thank you for being here tonight. Pray that God gives each one of you a very wonderful week. But I'm going to ask Shelby Hunt. Pray for Shelby. He's got some things going on in his life right now. And uh, pray for him. Get a sign from him. <laughs> and uh, pray for him next Tuesday. It's a big day for him. And uh, it, it is Tuesday, right? The 17th. Pray for Shelby that everything goes well as he runs for, for Congress. We're praying for him. Glad for what the Lord's allowed him to do. I want to ask Shelby, would you close us in prayer this evening?